Hey, Pete. Hi, Mia. What's up? We're about to record an episode of Share the Load. We sure are. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. Share the Load is a time to reflect on the division of labor within our personal relationships. When it comes to the burden of daily life, how do our evolving views on identity and work determine how we share responsibility? I host this podcast. My name is Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. If you're considering supporting the show monetarily this month, instead I'm asking that you send money to an organization that is directly supporting Black lives or directly to a Black person. There's an Instagram page called The Revolution Will Be Funded, which posts the names and Venmo or Cash App handles of Black individuals in need of financial support. I ask that you consider your beliefs around reparations and take into account that our government is not paying them. This is a direct way to support someone. I also send money to Activation Residency. That's Kamra Hakim's ongoing project. They were on the show a few weeks ago. Currently, funds are going to support Respite as Resistance, which is their respite experience for frontliners and activists in upstate New York. If you follow me on Instagram, at Mia Schachter, I have a highlight called Donation Racks if you're looking for other options. There's currently merch on my site. Through the end of June, half of shirt sales is going to Activation. So if you want to support Activation and also get a shirt out of it, you can go that way. How else could they support the show? Writing a review of the show on Apple Podcasts is really helpful to direct other people to the show. It helps improve SEO, from what I understand. You can also share about it on social media or directly with friends. Just tell everybody. Just walk everybody around. Everybody you meet. <laughs> say, hey, have you heard that podcast, Charlotte? All right, I think we should start the show now. All right, sounds good. host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. Today I'm talking to Marley Grace. She's a writer and dancer living in New Mexico. Hey, Marley. Hi. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm going to ask you, you know, specifically today. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, today, I'm a big like charter of my menstrual cycle mm. so um as a as a bleeder i um it's like a couple days before i bleed and i tend to like feel a little lethargic uh, it's hard for me to like tap into some of the like care routines that nourish me and i try to just kind of like let myself go with the flow of like you know what one might deem lazy or what i deem lazy um but I'm just kind of in acceptance today and and really happy to be on the call with you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really excited to have you. Um, you are someone that I have been following like since I kind of joined Instagram a few years ago, your personal practice page. And then it was so uh, – in the last couple months, I've had this kind of like um, – like pinball effect of through Brooke, her, and um, then being introduced to Camera, who was also on the show. And then it turned out Camera knew someone who had been on the show previously that I did not, and I did not know that they knew each other. Cool. And then um, 
and then, you know, it turns out that you know both of them or at least are familiar with them. And so it's been this kind of like whirlwind, you know, upward spiral of just like, whoa, all these people kind of, it turns out, are like already, you know, a web was already spun. So mm-hmm. um, it was, it's pretty cool to have you here. On top of that, also knowing Isabel from Everybody Jim, who- Oh, you, yes. Uh, yeah, that was, that was like the final thing where I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so uh, I usually start by asking people um, if you have formative memories of beginning to understand like a relationship to labor, understanding, like viewing it, watching it be divided, understanding that it was a thing that you yourself had to participate in and what your kind of roles were. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting coming from, you know, the class background that I come from, I think, you know, and this is like a narrative I'm sort of always trying to like undo or redo in myself, but is this idea that like, we work really hard and we don't make enough money and that's just how it is. And rich people are bad and we are good because we work really hard and can't get ahead. That's like word. That's part of like worthiness. Um, and yeah, the dynamic of like how labor was shared in my home, you know, I grew up with two parents, a mom and a dad and you know, my dad worked full time. My mom worked part time, but there was definitely like, in a lot of ways they balanced like home tasks and labor and money in a way that kind of reminds me of the way me and my current partner do that in terms of like, you know, if one person makes more money, maybe they put in more on rent or if like one person has more energy for housework, you know, that, you know, just looking at the different and it was funny when I read that question before you sent it, I was like, oh, that's like kind of how me and Jackie do it. And <laughs> even like there were some dysfunctional things clearly in my family dynamic, but it was, yeah, like looking back, it was, it was equal, not because it was equal. It was maybe that's, yeah, it was equitable um, mm. in terms of like how it was matched with each other. That idea of um, like equitable over equal, I think, is something that is so significant in really like, in close relationships because, like, I mean, the way that that comes up for me is like thinking in terms of um, you know open relationships, right? Where it's like it's not it doesn't need to be equal in terms of like you have this many partners and I have the same number mm. of partners. Mm. It's really like, yes. how are you getting your needs met and how am I getting my needs met and making sure that we feel good about our needs being met and not mm. like a quantifiable equality. Um, yeah. But of course that's a lot more complicated, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. When did, um, when did gender make its way into the picture around labor for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I love, you know, gender is something I honestly feel like I didn't like really consciously start thinking about until I came out as, as being gay. And I mean, I clearly like looking back now, I'm like, oh, I was thinking about that a lot, but I, it's, you know, a lot of my like coming into myself gender wise and sexuality wise just kind of stopped at some point. And then I sort of went into like a pretty heteronormative 
you know, binary existence of how I saw myself and saw my gender. Um, I mean, yeah, growing, when I like look at pictures of me as a child, when I like show my parents, they're, they are like, you were homosexual then. Like, we're so, (laughs) we're so sorry. And clearly like, there's no way to look gay. Like anybody (laughs) is gay. You know what I mean? But like, like the way I, identify with looking gay or feeling gay it's like when I look at little me with like my bowl cut and my like baggy t-shirt and my like bike shorts and there's this picture that was recently unearthed of me at probably my sixth birthday party where I am wearing a blue t-shirt with like high-waisted jeans and I have the biggest smile on my face and I am wearing a tiara and I am <laughs> surrounded by like seven girls all wearing like floral dresses. Like I am the little dyke in the middle <laughs> of these like femmes. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, I, I like my sexuality shifted maybe like two, two and a half years ago from really feeling like, an ambiguous queerness to like identifying as being gay and being a lesbian. And it's so interesting how literally the second I kissed my first girlfriend, I never wore a dress again. Like I never, I haven't worn a skirt. I haven't worn a dress. Um, So that's like a real, been a really interesting part of my gender for me to look at, to be like, how did it, what happened? Like now I feel like if I were to put on a dress on, I would feel so so uncomfortable and out of my body and I wore dresses all the time when I been into my late 20s so I don't know if that answered your question those are my thoughts I'm still like understanding my own thoughts Mm -hmm. about my own gender so yeah no I mean there's so much that I want to talk about in there and I'm struggling to keep it like specifically tied to um to this idea of like of, of labor kind of yeah. as it's like partitioned by gender because so much of the labor that you do at least publicly is like that kind of un in, intangible emotional mm. labor like self-care labor you know those kinds of things that do tend to get um like given to or delegated to women um mm-hmm. and and i wonder if that um like if that, if you can kind of tie that back to, yeah, yeah. to that connection. I don't know. I don't know if I've <laughs> ever thought about that, you know, because in a lot of ways, because I'm, have been my own boss for so long, I, or I shouldn't, I shouldn't say so long, but you know, for, <laughs> for most of my, you know, adult life, I, I sometimes feel a little disconnected from this part of the conversation because so much of my emotional labor is coming from like, it's not really being asked of me. Um, Like I have pretty, like I don't really have um, a team or, or I, I don't work with other people. I don't work, you know, most people who I work with are either identify as women or non binary or trans. I don't really like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, Maybe you know what do you, I don't know. Maybe I'm like you know you know about my work. Maybe maybe I'm I'm missing the connect, but I'm I'm like humbled to be like I don't know if I know. No, that that's co- yeah, that's great. That's like yeah. um you know living in that uh, nebulous space is like I think what rejecting um like binaries are is all about in you know in its essence at least for me like just understanding that there's like more than two options in the world 
for anything is like, yes, uh, was like a huge paradigm shift, I think, mm-hmm. um, for me in my life. But then even as I'm saying that, I'm like, well, it's kind of interesting that you then have actually gone to like, you've now identified with like such an extreme, whereas mm-hmm. it used to be a bit more nebulous. Yeah. But I think that probably comes back to like choice in it, you know, that there's like mm-hmm. actually agency in making that decision for yourself. Yeah. Um, so what is the kind of, uh, the work that you do that, um, like comes most naturally? I think the work, I mean, dancing comes really naturally to me, you know, that's what I, it is what I went to school for. It's what I have a degree in, but it's also what I have just always done since I was very, very small. Like since I can remember, I just, you know, love to dance. I love to make dances. I love to perform dances. I love to teach dance. It's very, I mean, it's definitely like other than maybe breathing and walking, you know, other than like basic kind of functions, like it's definitely the thing I have done the longest. Uh, So I, I definitely feel natural in that and writing. I mean, I started like writing really seriously when I was like nine, I started like envisioning like a novel, which I don't think I'll ever write. Who knows? <laughs> maybe I'm young. Maybe, maybe I will write one, but um, yeah, writing and dancing come naturally to me and bring me a lot of joy and I feel ease with them, but yeah, they are both tied into my work. My writing, especially, you know, became my, my job and like a main part of my career. And so sometimes it doesn't come as naturally anymore. Mm. Yeah. I had a similar, like I, I did ceramics for like a decade and you know, for the first seven years of that, seven, eight years of that, it was like pure joy. And then as soon as I monetized it, you know, Mm -hmm. classic story, but, and I was like, that won't happen. Like, I love this. That'll never happen. And then it did lead to just immense burnout because the the demand and the way to kind of make it like monetizable was to make it you know palatable replicable um and I just completely lost all of my love for it and ultimately ended up completely shutting it down Um, yeah I mean it's interesting to hear you say that because I you know so much of my work is like helping and encouraging artists to like make money off their art or focus on their art whatever that means to them and dance again is the thing I have like the most it's also the thing I've gotten the most like major press for the most mm -hmm. times people recognize me out on the street the most like you know, educational accolades, whatever dance. And it is the thing that I make the least amount of money on every year. And I think I do that on purpose. I think there's part of me that's like, I cannot bear to watch this, to watch something bad happen to this. Like it's Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, it's, and then sometimes I feel shame around like, but I should be pushing myself. And I'm like, no, I mean, my writing really is just like, my dance practice in mm. writing form, you know, it's, so it's, it's part of it. It's, they're connected, but. Yeah. Like they, they're symbiotic. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's also interesting because of what you said that like growing up, there was this idea that kind of um, you uh, like, if you were working and not making money on something that that was like the most noble way to do it. Do you think that that's related? <laughs> Uh oh. Okay, here we go. I mean, maybe 
I probably, um, I mean, I find that in everything I do. I mean, I definitely like spiral into what one might call like under earning because I, yeah, my career took a direction a couple of years ago where I started making more money and I started making more money at the things I already liked doing that I used to make less money at. Mm-hmm. So that was confusing to me. I'm like, I didn't necessarily start. I mean, I li- I'd like to think I work hard, but the work, you know, the like amount of sweat equity wasn't necessarily that much higher. I was just working really hard for very little money before. And then it started looking like more money. And it's, I definitely go into like trying to avoid that to be like, well, I don't want to have too much money. I don't want to <laughs> have, you know? And so that's, what I talk to my therapist about every Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, I'm, I'm having like a similar kind of related struggle, which is that like, I, I struggle with this, this like, you know, ego part of myself. That's like, um, I, I have this sort of sense that like, if I, if I let myself value what it is that I do and what I have to offer people that my ego is going to just inflate. Mm. Yes. And like uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. And that's like a catch 22 because I need to actually have a healthy relationship with my ego in order to value what I do and to believe that it's like, you know, not just valuable, but like impactful to other people. And if, if I don't believe that, like who else is going to believe that? And if I don't believe that I deserve to make a living, like literally a living. Like I can't afford, I live with my parents. I can't afford to move out because there's a global pandemic going on, like not for nothing, (laughs) but, but like, you know, can I charge money for what it is that I offer? Like, yes. Okay. Well how much, and like, how much do I then need to sort of put back into community stuff that how much is Mm -hmm. that? And you know, like I, there's this whole thing around kind of like Robin D'Angelo making money off of like anti-racism work, right? And like on the one hand, she's making a pretty big impact on people like my parents and their friends who like otherwise are probably not going to pick up like pleasure activism or, sure. you know, various other books. So like is is reading that like at least something, you know, I don't know where she's putting her money. But anyway, I like there, I also struggle with this kind of idea that like, I, I want to make money off of the work that I do. I think it's valuable, but then am I profiting? I don't know. It's so complicated. Yeah. I mean, I think the one, one thing I'll just say is like, I remember t- talking to my therapist about recently about like, okay, well, I'm going to donate this much money here and this much here. And I'm going to buy this for me and Jackie's home and X, Y, and Z. And, you know, my therapist was like, Marley, you're not rich. Like, you know, but to me having like a certain amount of money in the bank account as someone who grew up, you know, without money in the bank account, I'm like, I'm a millionaire. And she's (laughs) like, you are so far from a millionaire. Like you can't necessarily spend the way that you spend or be overly philanthropic when you're not a rich person, you know? And of course, like, you know, so much of my work is explaining to people how to be generous without being millionaires, which, um, I'm figuring out, but yeah, it's funny that, um, yeah, for those of you, when does this come out? What is it? Saturday, June 12th. Um, 
So for those of you watching, I feel like that's a really interesting example to talk about White Fragility, the book, and, you know, is part of, I think, like the extreme nuance in our society right now, in American society, around how do white people learn about being anti-racist? And yeah, I think it's really interesting. I have like, a, you know, a lot of like black women I'm very close to who are like, please read white fragility immediately, you know? Right. And then I have other black women in my life, black people in my life, people of color in my life who are like, fuck that book. Like, and you know, I think that comes from the idea that she wrote a book that is like exploits the pain of black people. And that's how she made money. Um, right. Which is complicated. Cause I think it also is a book that, that certainly uses that narrative, but also focuses on whiteness. But then if we're reading that, we're still centering whiteness. So it's really, yeah, it's really complicated. It's really nuanced. And there's, um, I think amazing points on both sides and, yeah, like you said, it re- if it reaches, I think it reaches certain people that maybe yeah. aren't ready to tune in other places yet. Um, it has to be like a gateway book. Like it can't be the like, and now I'm so. done. Right. Yes. Yeah. It has to be an entry point if it's going to be used. Um, but it is, I think, actually really helpful as a tool to have conversations about race between white people. Correct. Um, I agree. Yeah. Which I, I, you know, I think it's valuable in that sense. It's a very, it's a super complicated thing. And, um, you know, we're all, we're all figuring out how to kind of um, put our money, vote with our money, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can we pivot to a burnout in the revolution? (laughs) Yes. I'm getting ready to do a whole event about this in a couple of days with some people I admire, but I, yeah, I mean, I've definitely been thinking, I mean, so much of my work is writing about social media burnout and social media addiction as a, you know, so I'm sober from alcohol. And so how do I sort of like translate some of that knowledge and work into my phone addiction stuff and yeah, I think, you know, especially, you know, it's height, I want, you know, it's heightened right now for, for most people, I think, to just be like over, over consuming and underacting is something mm. that I wrote on social media the other day, you know, just looking at, and where can I not even think of like new things to share or to talk about when I'm just like consuming, consuming, consuming for hours, hours on end. Um, and yeah, I, I really hope that, you know, I want to be, and this feels for me like really important also as a white person, like I want to be resilient and I want to be, you know, that's part of my continued work to, dismantle white supremacy and, you know, always be acting from a place of, you know, wanting transformative justice and racial justice. And so for me, like when I notice myself get burnt out, I'm just like, we got to fix that. Like we can't, I don't want to go there because I want to be available to, for, for my people, for my friends, for my community, for my digital community. So but here's the thing that people I think are afraid of 
for a lot of different reasons is like not being active enough, like not being, not saying enough, um, and, or not going to enough protests. You know, I had friends who like went to a protest and then that actually like threatened a person one of them was living with who has an autoimmune disorder. And I'm like, this isn't collective care. Like you can't, like, it's okay if you can't go to the protest, like in order to care for people you live with, you know, I think that there's like, we all have to zoom out a little bit to be like, yes, like there are moments to push yourself. Like, are you tired? Are you white? Maybe you should push yourself because, you know, the black people in our community are really tired and exhausted yeah. and grieving and, and in the streets right now. Yeah, like um, increase and, your stamina. Yeah, increase your stamina. I, I love that. Um, and yeah, and of course, like there's a lot of people who can't, who can't go out for a number of reasons, you know, one of them being that we're in a global pandemic and, mm -hmm. you know, any, you know, anything that would be sensitive around being in a crowd, um, but yeah, I think for me, it's really, and I can only speak to myself personally as someone with like a large following and a lot of people who look to me is like, it's really important to me to not go into like a perform a performative place. And I also talk a lot about how I think all social media is, is performance. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, we're all choosing exactly what we show to the world. So even if it's totally in line with our visions and our politics and what we want for the world, we're still curating, we're still presenting to an audience. Um, so for me, it's really about like, making sure I'm moving my body, making sure I'm taking my herbs, you know, in my neighborhood, it was about, you know, having to like, again, be like, Instagram is not where I reach all humans. Like I have neighbors who I talk to every day. And so I made like a pamphlet to print out for my neighbors to like give to them that are like, here's some books you can read. Here's why we should defund the police and not reform the police, mm -hmm. you know? And so, but it's scary because I think people are afraid that looking that not posting or not saying anything for a, even a day or two looks bad. And I think that's where I'm just like, I have to release other people's expectations of me or else I think for me, I can swing into a place that could be harmful. And so, mm. um, yeah, not burning out, I think has a lot to do with like checking in with yourself and your nervous system and just being realistic about where am I overextending myself? And, and, and again, I think like what you said about, um, Right now, more than ever, I'm really, really finding the value of my white friends and being and talking together about what's going on, talking together about what we should be doing. Um, and I'm encouraged to see my black friends meeting with each other to grieve, to process, to like, you know, I think that that's a really important part of burning out for everyone right now to like be with your people. And so that like those groups can work together, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we, we do, we, we want to like, all be working together. And so that's going to mean like splitting up a little bit and like processing separately. Today's episode is brought to you by Patreon subscribers and by me. I teach boundary and consent classes on Zoom on a sliding scale. The classes offer a framework for the practice of consent and finding and communicating your boundaries. I've been told that these classes can give you more options for how to express yourself and even make more space for creativity. 
I've added two classes for next month. One is for actors, where I'll be talking about how you can advocate for yourself on a set and what your rights are. And one for directors, which will cover how to talk to actors and intimacy coordinators about sex scenes, as well as some gender and sexuality sensitivity training. You can find me by my name, Mia Schachter, on Instagram and sign up for classes through the link in my bio. I also offer one-on-one -on -one embodied boundary sessions. I'll let one of my clients, Aphomia, share her experience with you. Doing boundaries and consent work with Mia has been one of the most transformational experiences of my life. I remember when I began this work with her earlier this year, I was terrified. I didn't really know what to expect and was scared that I was going to make a fool of myself. And I'm so glad that I went because it's nothing like that. One of the most powerful things Mia ever said to me was that doing this work gives you the ability to understand yourself and to then give the gift to others to not cross your boundary. And it's been so rewarding and so amazing. And I've literally recommended her to everyone I know. She's a remarkable person. And the work is so individualized that I truly believe that everyone can get something out of it. Thank you, Aphomia, for that glowing testimonial. <laughs> you can contact me about those private sessions through the link in my bio as well. Yeah, something that I actually talked about with, with Cameron was like this idea of like being able to show up whole. And mm. if you are not caring for yourself, you can't fully show up in any other space for anyone else. Yeah. And that actually takes a lot of like um, of discipline. It can be really easy to kind of be like, well, I can do this for you. You know, it's it's so much easier for me to hold other people's boundaries for them than it is for yeah. me to like maintain yes. having one day off out of seven a week. Um, but me. yeah, but like being able to show up completely requires that self-care and that that you know that dialogue with your nervous system and also like giving yourself engaging your own ongoing self-consent like do i have what are the limitations of the resources that i have am i able to do this right now um and then as you're saying consent even like from the other people in your life i'm living with my parents right now they want me to go they were like yes go protest consider that you're there for us too um, but mm. then there was also like, well, you know, what is a like necessary risk versus an unnecessary risk? Are there ways that I can protest from home that are possibly even like sort of more where I am like, um, more impactful possibly. And ultimately I think that that's kind of where, where I'm landing that like, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I've been I went to the protest that I went to, but I also feel like even while I was there, I felt like I could be more in service by like working on this curriculum or mm. working on this, um, you know, reading this thing or like making sure that I'm more informed about this and that um, than, than being a body in a crowd. Um, but you're also talking about, well, okay, I, I want to pose this idea to you that's been, that I've been mulling over for a couple days. Um, because it sounds like it might be something in in line with with you, what you think about anyway. I was thinking about the idea of like a 12-step anti-racism program where like the first thing that you have to do is like is admit that you're a racist and that you're powerless to the high of power and privilege. <laughs> I mean your face makes me think that this is resonating. I literally was in a 12-step meeting the other day and talking to a friend and I was like I think everyone just needs to go to Al-Anon right now. I mean, specifically white people. I mean, it is literally, I mean, having program in my life is, you know, so important to me all the time. You know, it's why I'm alive today. It's mm -hmm. why I have a healthy, 
powerful relationship. It's why I have friendship. <laughs> it's why I have any, it's why I have anything, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. It's like my higher power and 12 steps, but yeah, I mean, I've really been thinking about, you know, when I've been seeing the internet to a lot of like bigger companies, usually led by white women, you know, getting called out right now in my heart, I almost want to be like, I wish you had the steps. Like, cause I feel like so often what's happening is people are getting feedback. White, white women are getting feedback and they can't do a thorough and fearless inventory of themselves and they can't make amends. Like, and that's where, where whiteness becomes really violent and really harmful. And yeah. So yes, I've been thinking a lot about like, yeah, I am powerless over, you know, I often just try to replace alcohol with anything, you know, I'm powerless over my phone right now. I'm powerless over, you know, whatever it is. And, um, and my life has become unmanageable. And then (laughs) I get to invite like a higher power into my life that guides me through the rest. I think that's the other thing is people think they have to do this moment alone. And I'd like to think we all have like access to divinity and some sort of divine connection, whatever the hell you want it to be, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, through that sort of like spiritual tapping in, we get to do an inventory of ourselves, figure out our character defects. <laughs> Most white people, one of our character defects is white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and like you said, I love the like, where am I addicted to like power and, and that privilege? I think that that is a hard part for a lot of at least white people in my life right now who, you know, maybe feel pretty equipped with tools, but are sort of starting to be like, where have I not? given up power where am I still really attached to that so yeah I mean I think it's a it's a it seems to be a collective identity crisis for amongst like white people who are you know shaken to their boots right now like Mm -hmm. you know where oh my god like where have I been ignoring people where have I been not listening like how have I been complicit and then all of a sudden having to reconcile that with the fact that like you still think about yourself as a good person and then then does does this mean that you are a bad person and like all this you know, and I think that that's stuff that people deal with, like in in recovery, um, and yes. also this idea that you're bringing up that that just keeps coming up, and and I I have started to find that like um, I think I think that the people that I am kind of talking to when I'm talking to like an audience, it usually is um, like it at least in this moment and for the last few days has been like white women who are like just becoming aware, you know, and, and my goal in that has become pretty clearly, like, if I can help you speed up your guilt processing so that you can arrive at action and not like wallow because it's very self-serving, then like, then I will feel really good about what it is that I'm offering. Um, But one of the huge things that keeps coming up is that so many white people right now don't know what to do because they don't know themselves. They don't know what they have to offer. They don't know what they believe in. And they, they are just completely like grasping at straws for like, how do I participate in this? Like, where's my role? And then they're reaching out to black people asking for guidance on that (laughs) because they don't, because they don't know how to look at themselves. And another thing that, that 
keeps coming up for me is this idea of like the somatics of racism, like the feeling Mm. in our bodies Mm. of white privilege, of white guilt, of white fragility, of white narcissism, like getting really aware of what those feelings physically feel like so that you can do your nervous system regulation. You can feel it bubbling up and be like, oh, that's my fragility. I'm going to stop talking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to maybe exit and like, you know, do some research rather than the defensive thing that happens, which is this like blathering on about how you didn't mean what you said and, and intention over impact. And if people, but, but now it's, now it's blowing. I mean, I'm just talking now about, because what came up then again this morning was like this idea that this, this, I, this is reinforced. We are not aware of the somatic experience of mm. our whiteness because of like medical Western dualism, <laughs> which is where yeah. everything kind of arrives back for me. Anyway, I'll drop that there and you can pick <laughs> that up wherever you want to. That was a many spoke um, wheel. It's interesting. I mean, I kind of like nervous laughed or laughed when you said the like white women go to black women to explain things to them. And it's like that feel that I hope that anyone listening who is white or people who are feeling like new to the work, that that might be the most one Oh one thing that you don't do. Um, Mm -hmm. But also I've done it in the past and I just want everyone to know that I, I fuck up repeatedly (laughs) And I've gotten really cozy with the feeling of fucking up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I feel like, and that's the other part of, I think, when we are all looking at like our roles right now is like, I haven't been, I mean, yeah, I was absolutely too late to this unlearning and undoing in my body and in my mind and in my work. And so for me, it's like, yeah, when I see other but it, it's everybody's role. Like, I mean, I think maybe it is some white women's role to yell at other white women to be like, Oh, for sure. <laughs> Hurry up. And that's not mine. Mine no. is to be like, I was you and it sucked. And I, and I really hurt people. And I, and I don't want you to do that to those people because to people in your life, because you know, a lot of those people that we harm from not doing this work are black people and they're really busy watching their community be murdered by police. So like, yeah. we don't, we don't want to add to that. And so, you know, and then I worry that I look like I'm being too nice, you know, but I, <laughs> I think that that's where I just, I try to pay attention to like my real life relationships and who I'm in collaboration with and who I, I'm always lifting up or talking about or working with, you know, whether it's in my newsletter or on Instagram and yeah, it's, I'm grateful for therapy. Also, I'm grateful, grateful for 12 steps. I feel like, you know, that's the other kind of like line of thinking that I've been looking at a lot lately is like trauma response. Like, you know, my thing is definitely like, I want, so badly to be seen as like worthy and lovable and like a simple harm done, whether it's around race or a friendship or anything can really trigger a response in me. That's like, I am a piece of shit and deserve nothing and cannot go on. And, um, that's just not true. You can mess up and be totally deserving of love and compassion. And I think that that's, 
it's missing from the framework a little bit right now, but I hope that that continues to be true. And that, that encourages people to keep showing up. So, right. That is, that is something that I really did value about white fragility was that she totally extrapolates like the good to bad person spectrum from the racist to not racist spectrum so that you're not like, so that you can acknowledge that you are racist, that I am racist. Yes. And a good person. Yeah. And that being not racist or anti-racist and being a good person is not about arrival. It's not about getting to Mm -hmm. a finish line. It's about a lifelong commitment to that work. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And yeah, I've seen, I can't credit who said it, but I've definitely, I've definitely seen people talk about like, you can't be not racist. You just have to be anti-racist. Like there is no there's just, there's either racist or there's anti-racist. Yeah. And it's like, yes. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something that, you know, I'm, I've been having like really complex conversations with my, with my parents who are in mm-hmm. their sixties um, about our responsibility. And I think, um, I think that that is a point that I haven't been able to communicate to them um, and I thank you for the language. I think that that's something that I can actually use. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in building stamina and I wonder if that's something, I think it's kind of part and parcel with this question of like, you know, what is my role and like, what is it that I can offer? And those things are becoming clearer, clearer to, to me. Like I know, I know that my, niche my window is consent and boundaries so i'm you know using that like pinhole into everything and like expanding outward from there um something that i've realized recently that i am pretty good at is like taking really uh like daunting information and kind of distilling it and making it like uh palatable and like Mm -hmm. non-accusatory so that's something that I've been working on, like figuring out how that can serve right now. Um, but I do think that this that it it ties into stamina, and it's really easy to to ignore the signs that you are burning out because you're trying to build stamina. Can you talk mm. about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I definitely it reminds me of like the phrase running on fumes. Yeah. Like sometimes my stamina, what I think is stamina is me going so fast on nothing, on like adrenaline and candy. Literally, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like not I didn't eat like a nourishing meal that made me feel powerful. I'm not hydrated. I'm like drinking coffee for the first time in six months and like buzzing around like, here we go, here we go, here we go. Um, Mm -hmm. and then that, you you know, we, and then we usually crash. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, that's why I do talk a lot and teach about like having daily practices or devotional practices, whether they're once a month or once a week or every day, you know, sometimes flower essences, herbal medicine Mm -hmm. is really important to me and feels like something I can kind of lean on or go towards when, you know, I need more stamina when I, when I just need to connect with myself in some way to just like pause, take my drops, you know, move forward. And 
And I think that goes back to like accountability. And I think right now for me, you know, always, I, def- I definitely have a few friends who are like in my same line of, of work in some ways, usually like the queer author type who also maybe teaches online or has products. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know what they call uh, that. But, I, I um, think that's me. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> we can be friends now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like I text with those people a lot because that is the other way it's really hard for me to check in with my own stamina. I mean, that's part of why I go to therapy. It's part of why I go to 12 steps. It's why I have a 12 step sponsor. It's why I have friends in fellowship friends. It's why I have, you know, colleague friends, you know, I definitely do a lot of checking in with other, with other people um, to check in on like, I haven't danced in a couple of days or like, I'm not drinking enough water or, you know, I also try to do that so that I don't burn my partner out who, Speaking of burning, she's a, a firefighter, and so she's actually oh. as we record this, you know, as we record this, she's been on a fire for almost two weeks. And so, you know, a lot of the way our relationship works is, you know, for half of the year, every year, she's not really around that much. She's like tending to our earth and yeah. the people, and making sure the people who who are on it um, have structures still. So. I, and she's, and like bunnies, you know, she Mm. makes bunnies get out of there. Uh, but so, yeah, I think that's like another thing I think about in terms of burning out is like how it also affects, you know, the relationships closest to me. So I maybe don't go directly to my partner with some of my work burnout stuff. I maybe go to like some of my friends who, Mm. um, would relate more also. Yeah. You're making me think of, um, like I just, I just was uh, like working toward this goal, um, with a couple other people. And this past like Monday, I think, um, I quit and I, I was really devastated to Mm -hmm. lose this project, but I was waking up every morning thinking like, what is going to go wrong today? You know? And I, and I was, like trying, I was really struggling to check in with my gut. Like I have done so much work. I mean, from years of, I mean, truly decades, lifelong, um, like gut and autoimmune issues um, where, you know, for, for the first 29, 28 years of my life, I was uh, learning that the only way for me to feel normal was to reject everything that my body was telling me and Mm. completely ignore it and tell it that it was wrong and that my head was correct. You see why I'm obsessed with dualism. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, so this was a really unusual experience for me because the whole journey of like, of diagnosis, you know, treatment, recovery, um, paralleled my training to be an intimacy coordinator, which was all about boundaries and consent. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they're just, they're inextricably linked for me, like getting, learning how to gauge and trust and hear my own boundaries and other people's is completely related to, um, to getting back in touch with and, and honoring my gut in order to even trust my judgment. So this past two weeks of like, you know, can I be involved in this project? Is this something that I can do? Um, really threw me for a loop because I couldn't 
tap into it. I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're telling me right now. I know that this feels bad, but like, why does it feel bad? You know, it was, it was also very racially charged and it was also, um, it was professional. And so there was like, you know, there's politics involved and um, relationships involved. And, um, and I was, you know, risking relationships and ending relationships. And I'm not upset to have ended those relationships, you know, for the large part, in large part, like I, I felt that those relationships had a time limit basically and they ended. Um, But yeah, losing, losing the ability to actually like listen and tune in and pay attention um, was really jarring. I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. Um, I think we were talking about uh, what were we talking about? Stamina. Stamina. Okay. Not burning out. My relationship. I was saying I try not to bring things to my relationship. Oh, yes. Okay. Thank you. Well, it's interesting because it does also, it relates to stamina because there was a lot of discomfort in it. And a lot of it, I was like, am I just uncomfortable? Am I an uncomfortable white person right now? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I was like, no, you know, there's a lot more going on here. Like that's, that's not what's happening. I think this is not right for me. Mm. Um, but I ultimately had, in the end, you were talking about burnout and like, you know, caring for your relationship, but caring for yourself. Like I had this day where I snapped at my mother. I got Mm -hmm. so impatient with various things. I wasn't eating, you know, and then I was hungry and I was like hangry. And, Mm um, and I, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, this is, I can't, I can't do this thing because of what, of you know, this is not really me. Like this is, Mm. uh, something is, this is affecting me in a really negative way. Like there's a really combustible chemical thing going on and, and, and I can't do this. And, um, and that ultimately felt more caring to myself and in fact, the other people involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It all kind of worked out in the end, but, Mm. um, well, I feel like we kind of have to get get to the end <laughs> um in wrapping up uh can you share with us three um things pieces of media people maybe experiences or conversations that were so impactful or transformative to you that they have brought you to the way that you think today mm, yeah um I've really identified Rachel Cargill as my mm-hmm. anti-racist educator for the last few years. Yeah. Um, she's really amazing to me and an amazing teacher and an amazing writer and just a really brilliant mind. And yeah, I feel like I've w- really watched her bring so many white women into into the work and so yeah Rachel's really influential to me um and then I feel like women like Glennon Doyle and Elizabeth Gilbert who are you know both white women both authors who are in the self-help world Mm -hmm. I kind of look to them as like models of behavior as white women in in the writing world and I've watched both of them publicly mess up and Mm. be really amazing at how they take accountability and like continue to move forward in 
their public and private relationships with communities of color and black women. And yeah, I feel like those are two people I kind of look towards to be like, cool, that's, I would like my behavior to like model that I would like to like do the inner work so that that, you know, is useful to me. Um, about, maybe about two artists, Lucasa Bramfin Verissimo is, um, an amazing artist to me and Ellen Rutt is an amazing artist to me. Those are two of my favorite artists. So maybe people can check out their, both of their work. I feel like there are two people who, um, yeah, who like the way that they make shapes and use text and make art in the world is reflects how I want to be in the world. Mm. Cool. Um, and where can people find you? You can find me in a tiny town in New Mexico if you look hard <laughs> enough. Um, I, my Instagram is Marley Grace with two E's and Marley. Um, if you like watching dancing, you can go to personal practice. And my website is MarleyGrace.space. And if you go to MarleyGrace.space slash home, that's usually where you can find all the it's my all my, all my links, you know, to all my things. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you like radio, you can listen to me from 3 to 5 p.m. Mountain Time every Sunday on KMRD, my local community radio station. It's an advice and music show. You can call in. You can send an email. It's called Friendship Village. You can listen to all the old episodes on my website. I'm on Instagram at Mia Schachter, S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. And you can follow the podcast at Share the Load Podcast. Special thanks to Pete Ziarto at Director Pete on Instagram for recording, editing, and producing help. And to Tyler Field for the music. You can reach me at podcast at sharetheloadinc.com with questions or comments. If you find these episodes enriching or educational, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash sharetheload. All right, Marley. Well, thank you. Thank you. This was really nice. Yeah, I appreciate it. Really lovely. Thank you for doing this. Thank you.